and learn to love Him and adore Him more. It seemed good to me, uh, since we've been talking a lot about false teachers and pseudo-Christianity for the last few weeks, I thought I'd share just a couple of experiences I've had, personal experiences that I've had uh, in this regard. It was 1984. I was only 29 years old. I'd only been a Christian for about a year. I didn't know anything about the Bible, but I was real jazzed about God, right? And um, in those early years, um, I was a, yeah, I was a theological use, uh, loose cannon, so to speak. I was zealous, but not in accordance with knowledge as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. I didn't know my Bible, and the church I was converted in was somewhat liberal. Um, you know, God gets His people in spite sometimes of the leadership. And uh, so I wasn't getting a lot of Bible, and so I was listening to a bunch of guys on the radio. Now, that can be good, or it can be bad. Obviously, it depends on who you are listening to during this formative period of zeal without knowledge. I was listening to a lot of these Word of Faith guys, you know, the guy that says, well, you just have to name it and claim it. Just name it and claim it. And if you name it and claim it, God is obliged to, you know, do what you want. Uh, miracles on demand, so to speak. And I was listening to these guys, and I was on my way. I still remember the day. Uh, it was a very hot day in August, and I was driving over to the hospital to see my grandmother, who was in very bad condition with cancer. And I was listening to this guy on the radio. He said, man, all you got to do is really believe. All you got to do is really pray. Just name it and claim it. And I got all worked up, right? So I'm driving to the hospital, and I just know that God wants to heal Grandma, right? So I walk into the room. My mom is there, and I announce to Mom that God wants to heal Grandma. And all we have to do is name it and claim it, Right? All we have to do is pray really, really hard and believe really, really hard. And God will be obliged to do our will in this case. So I walked into the hospital room with a ton of zeal and an ounce of knowledge, okay? <laughs> Which is always a bad combination. <coughs> and... Uh, so my mom and I, we laid our hands on Grandma and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed really hard and I, I believed really hard. And I said, Mom, did you believe really hard? She said, yes, Jim, I believed really hard. And so we named it and we claimed it. And Grandma died three days later. As I began to review that incident in my mind, the Holy Spirit assured me that I didn't have God wrong, I had faith and prayer. I want you to hear me say that. I didn't have God wrong. I had faith and I had prayer wrong. So my pilgrimage began with this beautiful and supernatural and mysterious thing called Christian faith and prayer. Zeal is a good thing, but zeal without knowledge does not honor God. If I had known my Bible that hot day in August, I, would have, I wouldn't have been led astray by that radio preacher. I wouldn't have confused my mother and given her false hope. I wouldn't have overstepped my bounds in faith and prayer, and I would not have sought to usurp the sovereignty of God, which most of these Word of Faith people believe they can usurp. They actually believe they're sovereign. Their Word is sovereign. 
They believe that God has delegated His sovereignty to them. And when they speak it, all they have to do is speak it. And their word is sovereign. You don't have to live very long and realize that that's false. I mean, if you're actually doing that, because things will happen in your life that you did not name and you did not claim. So zeal is a good thing, but zeal without knowledge can create all kinds of havoc. Just ask my mother, she'll tell you. She had to deal with me for those formative years. Fast forward about four years, 1988, I was still quite the zealous young man, but uh, I had actually become a student of the Scripture. One Saturday morning, I'm mowing the grass, and I'm called in from the yard. A young woman from my young adult Bible study group had called, and she has two Mormon missionaries in her apartment, right? They just showed up. They'd been recruiting her, and they showed up unannounced one Saturday morning. Now, I knew this woman was vulnerable to them for a host of reasons, so I went over there immediately. Now, these guys were nice and polite. They always are. These Mormon guys are. Um, but, you know, um, I've never been much on small talk when it comes to pseudo-Christianity. So I kind of got right to the point. And I don't want to call Mormonism pseudo-Christianity because it's, it seems like a compliment because Mormonism is so bizarre. It's so cartoonish. To even call it pseudo-Christian, I think, is somehow elevates it. So, I won't call it that. Most of you who know your Bibles and know a little bit about Mormonism, you know that Mormonism has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Absolutely zero. Of course, these guys wanted to talk to Brenda. Her name was Brenda. They wanted to talk to her with Christian-sounding generalities. And this is what cults always do. They use Christian words. They have different meanings, but they, they like to talk in generalities. And again, I, I, I just kept pressing them. They were nice and polite, and I was nice and polite. But I just kept saying, tell Brenda what your ultimate hope is. Tell Brenda what your ultimate hope is. And they kept talking. I said, listen, just be, give Brenda enough respect to tell her what your ultimate hope is. And you know, a Mormon's ultimate hope is not salvation. A Mormon's ultimate hope is exaltation. The male will become a god. His ultimate hope is to be a god and to have his own planet and populate that planet with his many wives. This is... And, I, you know, they don't want to say that. They don't want to... They're trained not to talk about these things. But one of the guys finally, he said, Yes, one day I will be a god. Okay, that's all, that's all that had to occur, right? Brenda said, get out. And don't ever come back and never call me again. So, uh, you know, zeal with knowledge is a powerful thing because we actually did something constructive at that point. Zeal is a good thing. But zeal without knowledge is not a God-honoring thing. Do you think it's a coincidence? Oh my goodness. Do you think it's a coincidence that right before we got into 2 Peter chapter 2 about false teaching and pseudo-Christianity, God reminds us that His Word is a supernatural revelation to us. Do you think it's a coincidence? No. It's not a coincidence. The Holy Spirit told us at the last two or three verses of 2 Peter chapter 1 that we have 
the God-inspired Word. It's God-breathed. It's from God. We have all that we need. As we were saying several weeks ago for that perilous journey to the celestial city. And you may remember as well the key word in 2 Peter chapter 1. Does anybody remember the key word? It'll probably be hard for you to remember at this point. Five times in chapter 1 there is the word knowledge. Peter, the Holy Spirit through Peter is exalting knowledge. The knowledge of God that only comes from Scripture. Right? The true knowledge of God. The, the true knowledge of Jesus Christ as Peter says in chapter 1. Five times in eight verses. The word knowledge. You may remember in chapter 1, you know, <laughs> we're always called to zeal. But again, the emphasis in chapter 1 of Second Peter was knowledge. Remember your divine salvation. Remember your divine sanctification. Remember the divine revelation that you have in God. It's proper and right for the Christian to have zeal, which simply means passion and ardor and fervor and fire. In fact, I don't think you can be a Christian without these things. I mean, how can you meet Jesus Christ and not be passionate about Him? I don't think it's possible. I think it's an oxymoron. I don't think Jesus thinks it's possible. If you actually read His words in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, He said, You are neither hot nor cold, so because you are lukewarm, I'll just spit you out of my mouth. So, I don't, obviously, Jesus doesn't think it's possible for you to say that you're a Christian and be lukewarm about Him. I think if we study our Bibles, we realize it's, it's not possible at all. By definition, the born-again Christian is zealous. But God has called us not only to be zealous, which we are, because we love Him, this great Creator, Redeemer God, we love Him. We are zealous in accordance with knowledge. This is what God calls us to. As we saw in 1 Peter and now as we saw in the first chapter of 2 Peter. So tonight we will finish chapter 2 of 2 Peter. You may remember in the first half, the first nine verses of this chapter, we uh, counted, at least I did, I counted at least 14 references to destruction, judgment, hell, punishment in these first uh, nine verses or so. God takes no prisoners when He's talking about men who purposely twist and abuse His Word for their own personal gain or purposes. I think chapter 2 of 2 Peter may be the harshest chapter in the Bible. Certainly in the New Testament. God just keeps landing on these guys, man. He just keeps landing on them with His denunciation and condemnation. So we're going to see tonight in the last half of chapter 2 of 2 Peter, the Holy Spirit continues to indict and condemn these false teachers. God's righteous indignation is palpable. So we, I just by way of review, we talked last week or the week before, I think it was last week, that that uh, what God had said through His prophet Jeremiah, God says about these false prophets in the Old Testament, and it's applicable to the New Testament. God says they are polluted. They are wicked. They are leading My people into futility. 
and they are not even ashamed. God says they pervert My Word. They deal falsely. They don't even know how to blush. God says they heal the brokenness of My people superficially and they intend to make My people forget My name. I am sometimes critiqued uh, for speaking against specific false teachers and pseudo-Christian denominations. But beloved, I have to tell you before God that I am compelled to call a false gospel a false gospel. I believe it's one of my principal duties as an under-shepherd to Jesus is to call that which is false, false. You know, there's this kind of goofy conspiracy in much of evangelicalism that we just play patty cake with one another and we don't call one another out. We don't say that's... Well, listen, I don't play that game. You know, if it contradicts the Word of God, we don't have a problem saying it. And I've been critiqued for that. But I get critiqued for a lot of stuff. You know, you know if you're going to do this job, you're always going to get critiqued. Somebody always doesn't like you know, what you say. So you can't worry about that. And so I'm going to call a false gospel a false gospel. I'm going to call a false teacher a false teacher. False teachers and pseudo-Christian denominations, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, we could simply say they're ignorant, which is in and of itself uh, dangerous. But most assuredly, most of them at worst, they are demonic. I know people think that's too strong, but I always fall back on what God says. If it's, if it's not the truth, what is it? It's a lie. And who is the father of lies? Please tell me. What does Scripture say? Satan. So if it's not true, it's demonic. Jim, that's strong. I know it's strong. You're supposed to know that it's demonic. And you're supposed to stand out in the world and say, listen, the Bible doesn't actually say that. Let me, sh- let me show you what it says. God says this. Listen, I, I tell people all the time, I, I've got Karen, I think, trained out of it. You know, a lot of times we say, well, I believe this. Who cares what you believe? Who cares what I believe? Everybody believes something, right? Don't say to someone, I believe X, Y, Z. Say, God says, the Bible says. Don't say, I believe. Because the person you're talking to, they believe something too. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what God says. And they'll know you believe it by the way you speak it and the way you live it. So this thing I believe, it doesn't have much power in this culture anymore. So please, Christian, defer to God and defer to His Word. Jesus said it in Matthew 7. You remember the great text. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good, t- every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. He's the guy that wrote the Message Bible. Peter says, Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they are out to rip you off. I love that. Because they are. Google them. Go look how they live. They're ripping everybody off. 
the prosperity preachers. Don't be impressed with charisma. This is, this is Peterson. Look for character. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. It's one reason we don't, we don't pass the offering plate, man. And God's always funded this church, but we don't pass it. We just don't want anyone to think we're about money. I don't want anyone to ever think that. And you know what? God always prompts His people to give. You, you don't have to beg. You don't have to plead. You don't have to petition. You don't have to pass the plate. There's nothing wrong with it. Most churches do it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm, it's not bad. It's okay. We just don't do it. We want to err in that direction. So that brings us to the text. You heard Mark read. I'm going to pick up here and halfway down through verse 9. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Remember the main point last week? God has judged. God will judge. God has judged the angels. God has judged the world in the flood. God did judge Sodom and Gomorrah. God has a record. He judges those who are in rebellion against Him. He's done it. And the implication was last week He will do it. He's done it. He will do it. I know people mock Him. Where's the promise of His coming? He's coming. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. This is the Word of God. He has done it. He will do it. Verse 10, And especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. The Lord knows how to bring judgment and He will to those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and those who despise authority and are daring and self-willed. You, uh, we saw it two weeks ago in verse 2 of chapter 2 that these men, there's a sensuality about these men. There's a, flesh, there's a fleshiness about these men. Sometimes it's manifested in sexual immorality. There have been many teachers in the United States, that's where I'm from, that's my culture, who have claimed to be teachers and have fallen uh, in sexual immorality. I'm sure it's happened in your home country as well. But sometimes this, this sensuality is evident in their extravagant lifestyles. Their $10 million homes, their $100,000 cars, their $10,000 suits, and their $5,000 watches. Their sensuality comes out in this love of the things of the world. Now what does the Bible say about someone who loves the things of the world? Am I saying it's wrong to be rich? Of course it's not. God sometimes prospers His people materially. Well, I'm going to share a great quote with you in a few minutes about that, so I'll just button it right here. Um, it's nothing wrong with it. It's what you do with it. It's how you feel about it. Is it in your heart? Or is it simply a way to be a blessing to the, to the church of God and to the world? That's what true... You know, you're supposed to be the FedEx guy. I tell you this all the time. God gives you the resource for you to take to the church and to the world. Yes, He lets you name your own salary. You keep some so you can live on. He, he's, he's, he's good like that. But you're the FedEx guy. You're supposed to deliver the resource to the need. That's what we're supposed to do. 
Did you notice verse 10? They are daring and they, their self-will. Yeah, they're daring. They take God's Word and they twist it and they turn it and they manipulate it and they spin it and they edit it. I can't believe these guys. They are fearless. They are fearless. I don't want to stand by one of these guys on the last day. God's wrath will come down. Verse 10 again. What does Peter mean when he, he says that these false teachers do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties? Now, this is a difficult verse to, to interpret. Uh, there are several different translations, but in my view, it's clear that it's perfectly uh, interpreted by Jude 8 and 9. I'll read Jude 8 and 9 too. Yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. You've probably seen some of these guys or heard some of these guys on television and, and the radio who seem to think there's a demon behind every bush. And they love to talk big about how they're going to rebuke Satan and kick the demonic hind in. Right? These guys, they talk big about this, man. They're going to do it. Listen, friend, you simply don't see this kind of cheap, braggadocious talk or behavior in the Bible. And this is what Jude is saying. Even the chief angel, Michael, does not pronounce a judgment against Satan. He simply says, the Lord rebuke you. I believe this is clearly what is being said here in 2 Peter. Verse 12, But these men and women in modern times, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge uh, will and destruction of those creatures also be destroyed? I looked at several translations and I just came up with a composite translation. Listen, it says, God says these guys are unthinking, they're unreasoning, they're irrational animals, uh, they're just simply brute beasts who run purely on instinct. This is God's indictment. Parenthetically, I would say that... Um, this Scripture buttresses the biblical assertion that man is unique in the created order. Man alone is a thinking, reasoning, self-aware soul made in the image of God. Some of you may be aware of Ingrid Newkirk. She's the, the founder of PETA, which is a kind of an extremist animal rights group. She's quoted as saying, her infamous, most infamous quote is, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Simply saying that man is nothing more than a highly evolved mammal, right? We're in the animal kingdom. Listen, if we read our Bibles, we understand that we are distinct from the animal kingdom. We are made in the image of God. You know, uh, to speak like she speaks is not only, in my view, lunacy, it's blasphemy. Because God says, man is made in my image. So, beloved, let's be careful with what we say about mankind. <clears throat> Close parentheses on that. Verse 12, did you notice these false teachers have no knowledge? 
Again, contrasting what we saw in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Knowledge. Knowledge. The born-again Christian is, has knowledge. Who's our teacher? We got knowledge from the Word of God. Who's our teacher? The Spirit of God. We have knowledge. We have the truth, actually. We have the truth. We have knowledge. These false teachers have no knowledge. Verse 12 again. They are destined for destruction. One translation of the Greek here reads, in their destroying, they shall be destroyed. In destroying others, they bring destruction upon themselves. Verses 13 and 14. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. I like how, again, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, their evil will boomerang on them. We know this, right? What goes around comes around. We know this. What you sow, you shall what? Count on it. God says it. Whatever you're sowing here, you reap there. Sometimes you reap here as well. But whatever you sow temporally, you will reap forever. You know, doesn't that put things in perspective? Whatever you sow here, you reap forever. Man, doesn't that make you want to be a huge investor in the kingdom of God, right? Try to stop me from investing in the kingdom of God. Try to stop me, I think, as one of the songs said, pouring myself out. Man, for this little bit of time, yes, I will pick up my cross and follow Jesus because I will reap forever what I have sown. I, that's not hard, a hard concept, I don't think. It's amazing that we live our Christianity as small as we do. Whatever you sow in time, you reap forever. I like how Proverbs 12:14 says it. The deeds of a man's hands, they come back to him. Don't you love that? And then, of course, you guys know Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This will he also reap. God calls these guys stains and blemishes upon the church. Isn't that a... A harsh critique. Verse 13. Some other translations say spots or blots or dirty spots. We understand that a stain or a blemish is to defile or sully or soil something. Verse 13 again. They revile or indulge themselves day and night. They revel in their deceptions, simply taking pleasure in their deceptions. They carouse, verse 13 and 14, uh, or they, they feast and entertain, having eyes full of adultery. Obviously, this again could be a sexual reference. Most probably, the principal meaning here is spiritual adultery. We know that all through the Old Testament, God would accuse Israel of spiritual harlotry. They were always being lured away and they would always go chase other gods. I think this is principally what's in, 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 in sight here in this text. They profess to be Christians, but they really love the power. 
the glamour, the money. That's what they love. That's their God. Eyes full of adultery. They're, they're, they're lusting after the things of the world instead of lusting after God. I've told you many times, lust is not a bad word. It's just always used in a negative context. You're supposed to be a lust. You're supposed to lust after God. You're supposed to lust after Him. Verse 14, clear picture of an unregenerate heart. They never cease from sin. They are sin. They are sin incarnate. They entice unstable souls having a heart of greed. These unstable souls, they could be immature believers or merely pretenders. Christians who attach themselves to the church for various and sundry reasons. Uh, they're merely religious. They're unstable in their faith. They're unstable in their belief. They're unstable in their doctrine. They don't know their Bible and they're easily led astray. You know, I've told you this before. You can listen to a false teacher really, if he's really bad, ten minutes you're, you know. If he's slick, it may take one or two sermons before you know. All you have to do is listen. But you have to listen with this in your heart and this in your mind. <clears throat> they entice. I like the Greek here is they catch by bait. They bait a hook for you. That's the imagery. They bait the hook for you. The bait is health, wealth, and prosperity. The hook is you just need to send me most of your money. Now, if you'll send me most of your money, if you sow that seed, yeah, you'll have health, wealth, and prosperity. And I'm going to give you that quote I mentioned earlier. This is one of my favorite quotes about the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's false. But, you know, Piper says, I abominate it. You know what the word abominate means? Piper says, I hate it. I loathe it. I detest it. And then he says, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel swallows up the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of His gifts and turns them into idols. The world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say, thanks to God. The world is impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it as gain. There's a true Christian heart. It's not what I can hoard up and attain and acquire. It's how God can use me to flush blessing to the world. Into the church, and into the world at large. These men are trained in greed, verse 14 says. The, the Greek word here, trained, it's, it's the word we get the, 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 the English word gymnasium from. These guys are working out so they can get your money. If you're biblically illiterate enough to send it to them, they will take your money. Verses 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke from his, for his own transgressions for a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of a prophet. Have you ever gone back and read the whole thing with Balaam? It's hilarious. He's talking to a donkey. He's just talking to his donkey like it's everyday business, Right? The donkey says, why are you hitting me? And Balaam just starts into a conversation. And he doesn't go, well, why are you talking? 
You know? You know, what did the donkey see? The donkey saw the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn as Balaam was going to go prophesy for money. So the donkey turned to the side. And the, I mean, the, here's the, the point. The point, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You go read it for yourself. It's in Numbers 22, I think. The point is the donkey had more discernment than Balaam had. That's the point. He was a prophet for hire. A prophet for hire. I love that story. Verse 17. These men are springs and women are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. These are powerful metaphors. This is, you got to understand, you know, Peter's in Israel. It's an arid, it's an arid area in the Middle East. A spring with no water, a spring with no water could possibly mean death if you're on a journey and you come to the spring and there's no water. This is the imagery that that the Holy Spirit is wants us to understand. These guys don't have anything to give, and they may kill you eternally with their false teaching. They are mists driven by a storm. You know, the mist would come in and there would be hope of a rain. But sometimes it's just a, a hot wind blast. Of, it's, just, it's just a windstorm, a sandstorm, which again can kill. This is the imagery that is being brought out here. And God is saying these false teachers, men and women, they bring spiritual death and destruction with them. And of course, black dark, darkness is a reference to hell. We talked a lot about that last week. And by my count, this is the 18th reference to some kind of judgment or punishment uh, or damnation in this, in this brief chapter. The literal translation here is thick gloom of darkness. I love, again, I have to mention Peterson's message paraphrase. He says it's the black hole of hell. It's outer darkness that Jesus Christ spoke about three times in the Gospels. And I, anytime I think about this darkness, some of you will remember if you're a student of the Old Testament, Exodus 10.21, when the darkness came on Egypt, you remember how it's described in Scripture? It's a darkness you could feel. Could feel. I mean, that's the darkness of hell. One time I got caught in a, in a fog. dark. Uh, it was night in a fog storm, and I couldn't see that far in front of my headlights. It felt like hell to me. I mean... One, I didn't think I was going to make it home, but I prayed. I pulled over and, you know, said, "Lord, help me, help me out here," <laughs> you know. And I inched my way home, and finally the the fog broke, and I made it. But it, I, I, it felt like hell. It, it just, it just, it just did. And this is one description that Jesus uses and Scripture uses. The outer darkness, verse eighteen. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Verse nineteen, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. When I read these words, I couldn't help but think of the old-style liberals and some of the new-style emergent church teachers. You know, these guys that just wholesale discount what the Bible says. They just, they just whack it off. They just stand in judgment over God's Word and they say, well, this is right, this is wrong. I tremble for those guys. We talked about them a couple of weeks ago. But that's what came into my mind when I read these words. They are arrogant 
and they are vain. And they set themselves up over the Word of God. Listen, anytime you've got some so-called pastor, preacher, teacher, priest, whatever, who's trying to teach you something that you can't verify in here, I tell you all the time, beloved, just run for the door. Run for the door. It's arrogance and vanity. Just for example, you know, teachers who redefine the deity and virgin birth and miracles and physical resurrection of Jesus. Teachers who redefine sin, sin by affirming sexual freedom and uh, homosexuality as we talked about last week. Teachers who redefine eternal damnation as we talked about last week saying, oh, don't worry too much about it. There'll be annihilation or universal restoration both of which we mentioned last week, which we certainly can't find in the Scriptures. You remember? It's back to Isaiah 30. The people want superficial pleasantries and illusions. They want to have their ears tickled. They turn away from the truth and they turn aside to myths. This is why these men and women are successful in what is called the modern church. Because most people really don't want the truth. They really don't want the truth. They want you to please them. They want you to encourage them. They want you to, to, to speak. Uh, they want you to build up their self-esteem. They want you to make promises that if they'll do X, Y, Z, they'll be prosperous. They'll be healthy. God will be obliged to... He'll be your genie in a bottle. He'll do whatever you wish. It's user-friendly Christianity. You know, I want to think of myself as spiritual. I want to think of myself as as being saved, but I want my materialism, I want to be self-absorbed, I want to love myself above God, and I want my sin. That's the kind of Christianity that the Bible's talking about here. Arrogant and vain. It's what God says in Romans 1.22. It perfectly fits these false teachers and those who follow them. Professing to be wise, they have become fools. These false teachers promise freedom, but they only deliver more bondage. Anyone who's ever fought a, a, a besetting sin, you understand there's a kind of bondage. And you just have to keep, as a Christian, you just keep Praying and fighting and praying and fighting and praying and fighting. And then the Lord gives deliverance. We understand that sin is bondage. This is what the Bible tells us. But Jesus says, how does the Christian find freedom? If you abide in My Word, then you are truly My disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Let's finish up here. Verse 20. <clears throat> For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Verse 21, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it and turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, It has happened to them, according to the proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. What verse 20 is talking about here, we, we talked about this at some length two weeks ago as we discussed that, that phrase in, in verse 1 that <clears throat> we're talking about these false teachers 
that they even denied the master who bought them. And we, we, we acknowledge that there's this ambiance that comes off this verse that makes us think that these guys were once real Christians. The same ambiance is coming off verse 20. It makes us think that it's, somehow they, they, were, they, were, they were true Christians. They were real Christians. They knew Christ, but they've, they've returned. They've become entangled again in the defilements of the world. I'm just going to repeat what I said two weeks ago. And there's a mountain of theology here, and I can't make my case convincingly in the time I have left. If you come to me individually, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. There's a mountain of theology here. We're supposed to know how God saves a man. It's by sovereign grace. And as we, if we understand it's by sovereign grace, when a sovereign God gives eternal life, it is eternal life. The Bible simply doesn't teach that a true believer can ever lose their salvation, so we understand the Bible interprets the Bible. These guys were never real. You need to understand that. They were never real Christians. They claimed to be. They associated with Christians. They acted and talked like Christians, but they weren't real. They were Judas. We talked about this two weeks ago. They were the Judas branch of John 15. I'm going to read it to you again. That, that verse there in John 15, every branch in me, well, that sounds like someone's in Christ. Well, what does it say? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes it away and throws it into the fire. Beloved, we have to understand our Bibles. We have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. We don't, we don't run off on a tangent because one verse is a little confusing. There's a mountain of theology here in understanding the biblical formula for salvation, which again, preeminently, is the sovereign power of God. And as Jesus says in the Gospels, I think seven or eight times, I'll not lose one. I will not lose one. So these false teachers, like many false converts, they're just dabbling with Christianity. They hang around the church. They have their own agenda. They hear the truth. They learn some stuff. But they never genuinely repent of their sins. They never really give themselves to Jesus. They are Judas. And as I've told you many times, everybody knew Judas was real. Judas was false. I'm going to read Hebrews 6, 4-6 through 6 to you real quick because people get confused about Hebrews 6. I understand they get confused about Hebrews 6. But this is the exact same thing that Hebrews 6 is talking about. Listen to what it says. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of the Lord and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. If you have confusion about this, please come talk to me. I'll be happy to to talk to you about this, but Christians don't lose their salvation. It's impossible. <laughs> impossible. So, these guys have merely played religion with the Christian church. They have never truly surrendered to Jesus. They have become entangled in the defilements of the world. They are like a dog going back to its own vomit. You know, I, I've actually known Christians like this. You know, they, they, they kind of work themselves up in the flesh and they wanted to... They <clears throat> profess Christians. I don't know if I said it properly. You know, they want to they make a new start. They're going to clean up their life. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. 
But it never got past that. It never got, I'm going to clean up the outside. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Man, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers, but you're full of dead men's bones. Beloved, it can't just be an outside renovation, right? It has to come from, it has to come from the heart. So in completing our look at 2 Peter chapter 2 about false teachers and pseudo-Christianity, I'm just going to repeat what I said a few weeks ago. There is a shocking naivete among many who profess to be Christians. They actually believe if a guy is a preacher, a priest, a minister, a bishop, a cardinal, a patriarch, or a pope, you can trust what he says. Wrong. You should always be suspicious. Unless you know the guy. Unless you know somebody who knows the guy. Unless you know somebody who knows and has been in the guy's church. He's heard the guy teach. And of course, you have to listen for yourself and you have to take what he says and you have to take it to the Word of God. I don't care how much it tickles your ear if it's not in the Word of God. It's not true. You may like it. It may tickle your ear, but it's not from God. The Apostle Paul said it in an unforgettable way for a reason. As I said to you two weeks ago, even if an angel preaches to you another gospel, let that angel be a curse. So I want to say to you, beloved, uh, it's your responsibility before God to abide in God's Word as Jesus told His disciples in John 8, thereby having, uh, having it in your heart, your mind, and on your tongue. And I'll close with 1 John 4, 1. John writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not believe every spirit, but test them. And for those of you who are new, you should test me. Am I of, am I of God or am I a usurper, an empty suit, a false prophet, a false teacher. You should be suspicious of me until you begin to gain confidence that everything I'm telling you is coming from Scripture. Because many, as John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So I started tonight talking about being zealous uh, without knowledge. My challenge to you, every one of you in here who are Christians, yes, be zealous. Be zealous. But be zealous in accordance with knowledge that you may be able to discern false teachers and you may be able to warn your friends and family about false teachers. Be zealous in accordance with knowledge. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. As always, <clears throat> thank You that you give us the unvarnished truth. Lord, I pray that You'll help us. I pray that we would be good stewards of Your Word. I pray that we would eat it and drink it, that it would be our meat and our drink, that we would know it, that we would fill our hearts and minds with it, that we would be able to hear error when it's spoken, when it's taught, when we read it. We would know error because we are immersed in Your Word and we have been taught by Your Spirit. So Lord, I pray that we would be good stewards of this awesome gift that You have given us, Your revelation. Thank You, Father. I pray that we would be faithful in this call because false prophets are everywhere. They are everywhere. I pray that we would be faithful to speak truth. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.